Welcome to the Passion Business Podcast, the podcast for free spirits with a big idea who want to turn their passion into a business. I'm Anke Herman and I'm your host. My guest today is a communications and privacy attorney in Washington, D.C. and founder and CEO of Washington Tech. Founded in 2014, Washington Tech's mission is to fight for a safer and more trustworthy internet by teaching tech law and policy to everyone who wants to shape it. Welcome, Joe Miller. Hello and welcome, Joe. I'm delighted to have you here with me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Okay, it's great to uh, sit down with you. Awesome. So let's just dive straight in and let's share with people where in this lovely world you're based and what's your business. Sure. So I'm based in the Washington, D.C. area, a place called Fairfax, Virginia, uh, which is where Civil War started. Uh, first shots were, were, were uh, fired in Fairfax, Virginia. That has uh, nothing to do with my business, but it's just sort of an interesting a- anecdote. Uh, and I work on public policy and I uh, founded and in the CEO of an organization called Washington Center for Technology Policy Inclusion. And our brand name is Washington And our mission is to teach technology law and policy to anyone who wants to shape it. So we're concerned with issues related to privacy and information integrity uh, primarily. So we're interested in keeping ourselves safe online and helping the public understand what the policy debate is, because at times it can get very confusing. I remember when I started out um, in uh, this profession, going to panel discussions and not really understanding what folks on the panel were talking about because they'd been in the profession for a long time. And so they were using terms of art and uh, technical language that I didn't really understand. And if I didn't understand it as a lawyer, then how could the public understand it and how could they participate in the discussion? And so that's why I've uh, created this platform in 2014 to uh, give diverse voices exposure to an audience, to amplify their voices because they weren't being heard in Washington, and also educate the public on issues related to technology, public policy. Our other uh, issue, of course, is information integrity. We're very concerned about issues related to misinformation and what a lot of the uh, states in the U.S. are doing to attempt to prevent platforms from moderating and removing things such as hate speech. So we just joined an amicus brief uh, before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court uh, ended up making a decision on our side to stop the implementation of uh, Texas's uh, content moderation law, which would have done what I just described. Uh, Texas is a red state, and a lot of uh, Republicans in the United States are concerned that uh, these platforms are discriminating against conservative viewpoints um, in favor of progressive viewpoints. But the Texas statute didn't apply to to platforms smaller than 50 million users. And so what that did is it created a loophole for smaller platforms that prioritize conservative speech like like Parler to uh, ban progressive voices, uh, but at the same time uh, kind of give a private right of action to citizens to sue larger platforms like Twitter 
if they if they argue that their uh, speech was removed with a political motivation. And of course, we uh, disagreed with that. And the, and the Supreme Court is there's a big battle uh, about it and how to define viewpoint diversity underway. Uh, but uh, through this initial round with the Texas statute, it looks like us, we in our in our coalition and our um, and our fellow uh, folks, which include technology companies, uh, were victorious in this particular case. Well, congratulations! It sounds like such a difficult terrain to to dread, to tread, to tread, and in, in especially I don't know. It seems to be getting worse that whole discussion and you know and the whole idea of manipulating information and, and withholding and, you know, like half-truth by not telling everything. And so it's a, it feels like a minefield. So how, so you start, I saw you're a lawyer, right? I so am. how, how did you, like, how did you decide to start your own, like that, that kind of, like, in, I'm just my mind's going back to the year 2000, right? So where this whole thing about sort of policies and you know in the year 2000, like everybody had to write up all these things, and there was literally, especially in the software world, nobody wanted to do that. So mm -hmm. you seem to have jumped headfirst into an area that everybody else wants to kind of stay away from. Mm -hmm. Am I right with that? Uh, I'm to uh, to a certain extent. I mean, there are, are a lot of different areas. Uh, that are important in technology. One of them, of course, is intellectual property, uh, where they can kind of stay away from some of the uh, privacy issues and uh, misinformation issues. But uh, to the extent that these things are shaping our debate, uh, you know, there are a number of people, and it's interesting that you raise that issue because they are not easy issues. We have to deal with a lot of issues related to race and ethnicity, um, gender, and uh, sometimes those issues are very difficult to navigate and figure out how aggressive uh, an organization like mine is going to be. Um, so that can uh, make it difficult. But this, this is the field that I've always been in. I started out working in broadcasting, though, at a classical race, uh, radio station in New York that was owned by the New York Times at the time. Now it's uh, owned by WNYC, which is the uh, public media flag flagship in New York City. And I remember this was, you know, I'm dating myself, but this was my first job in 1997 and the internet was just sort of coming about. So I'm almost like an embodiment of the internet. Um, uh, if that doesn't sound too weird, because I started out my career in the beginning and now I've just kind of gone along and evolved along with it. Um, and, you know, I went to law school at night and in my last year of law school, September 11th happened. I was working at McGraw-Hill at the time and watched September 11th through my office window. And that's really, you know, kind of the catalyst for everything that we've seen uh, since then. Um, but now the, uh, the discourse has changed in ways that I think none of us really anticipated in the sort of the wild west of the internet when folks were really optimistic about it being a platform to amplify voices and allow folks like you and I to create our own businesses. Um, and so we've always advocated for, for policies such as net neutrality that continue to allow us to have the ability to have our own businesses and ha have our own platforms online without having to pay um, so the, the same amount or, or having to have paying for uh, um, bandwidth 
become a barrier to small businesses that can't necessarily afford that when they're uh, first starting up. Uh, so that's why we uh, supported efforts uh, to, to have these net neutrality rules, but they were overturned under the Trump administration. Uh, and now we're sort of evolving and step, now we're in doing, dealing with privacy and section 230, which is another statute in the US uh, that's, being misinterpreted in some ways, we can get into that if you if you like. Um, and then you know now we have to uh, uh, talk about policy in, in the context of misinformation and propaganda, and what that's going to mean uh, under the First Amendment. Mm. So as a as a company, so how who's your client? Who who pays who pays the bills basically? Who pays you for your services? So we. Uh, we are based in Washington, like I said, which is a very different environment from somewhere like Oakland, which is uh, which uh, seeks funding from has the ability and the luxury of seeking funding from. Uh, and I'm talking about Color of Change now uh, has the has a luxury of of, of getting funding from uh, foundations because they don't have to deal with this perception of being quote unquote bought by corporations. But, you know, from my perspective, we've done a lot of work with Google over the years, and Google was the first organization with corporate or foundation or otherwise that ever took uh, diversity and inclusion in technology public policy discussions seriously. So we're aligned with folks who are serious about having our voices at the table and having us be influential uh, and, and, and enabling us to speak our mind while at the same time promote policies that are going to be sort of beneficial for everyone. Uh, there are a lot of factors that we need to consider in a capitalistic society um, that are uncomfortable. There, like I said before, there are issues at the intersection of capitalism and, and race that we have to constantly grapple with. But our, the folks we seek support from our foundations uh, but we also seek support from uh, corporations like Google uh, that we think have uh, done a lot of good work with us anyway in the policy uh, debates around this and bringing us to the to the table in terms of public policy making. But from some of what we've seen in terms of diversity and inclusion, you know that kind of thing has been problematic. So we have to kind of you know toe this line between. Um, between you know being against some of what they've done, some of what they've done, such as the firing of Timnit Gaybrew for exposing what they were doing with al algorithmic bias, and then also really saying that in this public policy discussion, they really were the first company to um, to bring diverse voices uh, to the table. And whether it's part of their strategy or whatever it is, again, this is Washington, and if it's part of their strategy. Uh, I don't see where the ethical problem lies, uh, but we, that's what we, we navigate. We have to navigate Washington, D.C., uh, which in which we simply cannot afford to, um, to uh, and we're not in a position to seek exclusively uh, foundation support and then individuals, of course. So we just built a membership program that folks can join to learn more about tech policy. And we bring in diverse voices from across uh, the political spectrum and from various different uh, disciplines 
on our podcast, which we've been doing since 2015. We bring scholars on the podcast from all over the world whose voices were never heard before. And we've had more uh, racial, ethnic, and, and gender diversity on our program uh, probably than other uh, any other uh, quote unquote think tank in Washington, DC uh, you know, prior to COVID and after, after the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, now that we're in this virtual world where we can have a lot more of these discussions online. Mm. Yeah, that makes, makes sense. I'm curious about how, what sparked the idea to even create this project and what was like, who's the first person or the first organization who trusted in you? You know, when, you know, those first, when you first transition and they, you don't really have you need somebody to trust in your capabilities without having the proof of past, you know, past project. Who was that first, what was that first project like? And I mean, what sparked the idea? What's, when did you know, I'm going to build something here? Uh, I started as a, a fellow at an organization called the Multicultural Media and Telecom Council. And it was the only nonprofit in Washington that brought diverse voices uh, to the table. Um, they work with telecom companies like uh, Verizon and AT&T uh, to talk about things related to broadband access and broadband adoption. And again, they're in a position where they also, they too need to navigate this space of, that just comes with the territory of being uh, located in, in Washington. Uh, and their uh, board is comprised of, of prominent uh, diverse partners and other leaders uh, in the telecom and, and technology space uh, that are advocating on these issues. And so I started in that role, writing filings before the Federal Communications Commission, dealing with issues related to uh, broadcast ownership diversity and increasing the number of broadcast stations owned by people of color and women in the United States, which is still statistically zero after almost 100 years of uh, media regulation in the US. Uh, and then as we evolved, started working on issues related to broadband affordability, uh, really worked on antiquated issues like uh, the emergency um, alert system, antiquated, obscure issues, but that were important issues, such as making emergency alerts on broadcast stations, uh, doing them in English and Spanish, wow. or or advocating against a, uh, a radio station ratings uh, system that uh, inadequately counted the voices of um, of marginalized communities across the U.S. Um, because I'm trying to remember how the how that algorithm was designed, but we uh, I appeared before the New York City Council because of the way it was being um, implemented and how it affected uh, stations that were owned by. Um, by diverse broadcast owners. And so that's how I kind of cut my teeth on that. I went to work for a uh, think tank called the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, which is focused in, which was founded in 1971, uh, which focuses on issues of concern specifically for African-American communities. And uh, I uh, co-directed that their Media and Technology Institute, along with a very prominent scholar whose name is Nicole Turner-Lee, who's now at the uh, Brookings Institute and is very in uh, influential here in Washington. Then in 2014, uh, the Joint Center, you know, 
ran into some difficulties and laid off their entire staff. And so that was kind of the catalyst for, you know, if I'm going to start a business, uh, I'm going to start it now. And we actually started as an LLC and then uh, converted to a nonprofit in 2020. But again, it goes back to always having in the back of my mind this Mm. experience where I went to uh, an event to learn about tech policy and didn't understand yet any of the uh, language that they were using or any of the, I mean, I do now. uh, And so just kind of sitting there wondering if I didn't understand it as a lawyer, how can folks who don't have legal training or who haven't haven't worked in, even in a broadcast station, how would they, um, uh, how could they understand and impact these issues? Hmm. It's, I mean, sometimes I'm I'm thinking, I can't believe like we're in, you know, 21st century and this whole question of equality is still a discussion. What's your take on that? I mean, I'm just like, this should not be even a topic anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I I think if in in the best case scenario, um, the best way to talk about race is to not talk about race, but that's not possible because we have to continue to track the disparities that are a result that go all the way back to um, to the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these effects are still felt because the assets were passed down from generation to generation and reinvested repeatedly, compounded interests over many, many uh, generations that excluded people of color. Uh, the Civil Rights Act wasn't passed until 1968. Uh, and so we're talking about only a, a few years mm-hmm. of uh, quote unquote uh, in uh, equality uh, since the transatlantic uh, slave trade uh, ostensibly ended in 1865, um, except for prisoners here in the United States, it doesn't apply uh, to uh, prisoners. So we, do, we don't uh, have an equal, equal uh, society by any stretch of, ima- of the imagination. And the reason we're still talking about it is because the effects are still there. The geographic effects are still there. The footprints, and think of it as an archeologist, the artifacts are all still there and, mm-hmm. and affecting how our communities are, how s- our uh, school boundaries are created. We have segregation problems here in, in Fairfax County that I've been advocating about. Um, uh, separately. Uh, And it's just, you know, when you do this work, you almost have to uh, approach it like a scientist, because it's not all this idea of critical race theory. I think of them as critical race facts. Uh, These are facts that we're dealing with of Mm. uh, how these structures continue to play out in society. Mm. I mean, I guess if you, yeah, that's, that's very, that's a very good point. Like if you sort of think about how recent the change is actually historically it is actually quite a short time really there's not that many generations yeah that makes that makes that makes total sense and so look how, there's how been a long your, how do you keep your enthusiasm going because it feels like an uphill battle like it's just so much hard work it, it, it feels like there's so much effort involved in making like the tiniest progress how how do you keep your enthusiasm for because you've been in it for a very long time so you obviously find a way to keep your enthusiasm how do you do it um i just wanted to make one last point and um because i don't want it to come across like it's only people of color that have 
uh, problems because ever since the planters were here and they had their plantations, they needed to figure out a way to prevent, uh, quote, you know, um, white folks and uh, black folks from coming together and combining and, and um, uh, ending slavery and ending the, 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 uh, the plantation uh, model that they were implementing and their uh, successors have continued to uh, implement. So I just wanted to say that uh, at first that that, that, that uh, divisiveness has been instilled and continues to be instilled over, over many, many generations. Uh, how do I stay motivated? I mean, it's not uh, easy um, because I'm not dealing with selling something like consulting uh, that can, that can, uh, that has a, uh, where someone comes to the site and says, okay, good, I know what this is. It's really something that we have, we have to work hard to make clear and articulate the relevance for our regular folks. But, you know, I, I just, uh, the conventional wisdom and the wisdom I try to follow and I'm not always successful out is, you know, uh, fitness and getting enough sleep and, um, you know, meditation, because it's really important to have a sense of perspective uh, when you're dealing with extremely uh, contentious issues day in and day out. Mm. Yeah, that, I mean, that I mean that's so true. It's like you're not selling an, an easy product. It's not like, hey, you know, I'm I built your website, and at the end you have a website, right? So it's like it's a much it's a much um, much bigger bigger topic where, yeah, you have to do a lot of work and continuously. Now I had a look at at your at your website, and the first thing I saw was like, okay, how to keep your children safe on the internet. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an enormous topic, isn't it? It feels like, you know, in so many ways, sometimes you think, well, you know, younger generations, they have it kind of so much easier in, many, in so many ways. But when you look at it, oh, my God, like, you, I think we had it a lot easier that there wasn't that jungle out there of, of um, you know, call it predators. So what's your perception of the whole space and how is it developing where is it going what's your your best advice for for parents uh well we have a checklist that folks can find at techpolicypodcast.org forward slash safety check uh that gives uh parents uh eight steps they can start implementing immediately to protect their kids online and those include things that they can do both on their computers uh, the, the hardware uh, themselves and how to set the settings on the hardware uh, themselves, um, uh, the parental settings, and then also reviewing what the um, some of the uh, policies are with the companies themselves so that parents and caregivers can understand more about how each platform, whether it's TikTok, Twitter, or whatever it is, um, uh, what, what control mechanisms they have in place and what they're doing to um, make sure that predators don't uh, have access to our kids online. One other platform that hasn't been included in these debates is, is Discord. Um, you know, another platform mm. is uh, uh, the gaming platform Twitch. Uh, policymakers have focused sort of on these larger platforms. But there are all these niche platforms that are affecting kids and not just affecting uh, their their uh, their um, 
their safety in terms of predators having access to them. But we also uh, consider uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, that's published to reach them, whether it's legal or not, uh, whether it violates Children's Online uh, Protection Act uh, or not, that's designed to change the way they think about uh, issues related to race. I mean, when we, a parent asked me recently, uh, you know, how do I prevent my kids from becoming racist? What can parents do? And, you know, there's only so much parents can do at home. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it has to do with the information that they have access to. Uh, and so when we think about online safety, we're talking about uh, typical uh, privacy policies and looking at the settings that these companies have in place, but also in advocating for uh, public policies that preserve uh, information integrity uh, so that we are dealing and that people can rely on the in internet to be providing them with facts uh, as opposed to uh, having uh, diverse view viewpoints uh, positioned as uh, as as uh, theories. Um, some things clearly are theories, um, but you know how, how do you how do you build trust with communities that are prone to believing misinformation and disinformation, like PizzaGate or um, issues like like that? you know, Mars is, you know, aliens and things like that. Um, those things are kind of fun to think about uh, as entertainment, but they're not facts. So. So what, what's what, like, say, if you look back, like at the whole trajectory, what's like, if, if you could go back, what's one thing you wish somebody had told you when you first started out this whole project of, embarking on that mission? What was one thing if you think, oh boy, I wish somebody told me that one before? Uh, don't do it, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why are you doing this? <laughs> um, you know, I'd, ha I'd have, let's see, what's a, a, a piece of advice that I wish someone had told me? That's some pretty good advice starting out. Um, well, then, oh, one something really... that you did get. <laughs> yeah, that's a really hard question. Uh, but but I would say that you really have to, um, this is a political town and you never know who's going to be uh, in power at one, you know, from one administration <laughs> to another. And so, and this is advice that I did get and I've done to the best of my ability with it at the same time. It's like things have to be said and they have to be said. Uh, plainly when folks cross the line and you know from the perspective of of myself as a civil rights lawyer you know we've had organizations that um attack our communities public publicly with you know some of these uh uh quote-unquote reports uh that don't have that aren't produced by any people of color on staff and so when you attack our attack our communities without the input of, of people of color, those things need to be uh, called into question. Uh, but for the most part, uh, it's important to maintain relationships as much as you can on both sides of the aisle, um, which people have a 
varying levels of success doing. <laughs> I bet, I bet. It's a minefield, isn't it? So what, what, what have you got planned for the next couple of years or where you see yourself and your company in it yeah, next year or so? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, we have a strategic plan in place uh, to, first of all, fundraising is our number one priority. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've got to constantly grow and build. We've got to constantly grow and build our audience with our podcast. Um, we have to continue to think about ways to articulate these very wonky and um, objectively boring policy discussions uh, <laughs> to folks in a, in a way that actually makes sense for them and impacts their, their lives and their businesses. One of the issues that impacts our businesses is this idea of privacy by design and how a lot of uh, platforms, including yours in mind, you know, have to kind of put prior uh, privacy first uh, in order to help your customers feel genuinely secure. They need to know not only that you're not selling their information, but, but making sure that when you say you're not selling it, that you actually aren't selling their information to anyone else. And so that type of thing has become more and more critical as we see uh, privacy laws uh, evolve. It's hard to say how things are going to change. Net neutrality will probably be an issue again. Broadband access and adoption are always an issue. Uh, First Amendment is going to um, continue to evolve with this concept of viewpoint diversity and how we're going to define this concept of viewpoint diversity in the U.S. Uh, so in terms of a, a growth standpoint, we have our strategic plan in place and building engagement. Uh, but in, uh, as far as knowing what the policy issues are going to be four or five years out, uh, it's really hard to say at this point, but we continue to grow with them and evolve and try to make sense uh, to uh, to regular folks. Awesome. And so where can people go and find out about, more about the project and get in touch with you? What's the best place to find you? So they can find me on uh, Twitter. My Twitter handle is J-O-S-S-M-N-Y. And my, um, our company handle is Washing Tech on Twitter. Uh, they can find us on Instagram with the same handle. And it's Washing Tech, not Washington Tech. So I just love it. Like Washington <laughs> yes, with very Tech. Cool. So I get that a lot. Um, uh, and then, of course, you can find us on washingtech.org. Our podcast is techpolicypodcast.org. And on there, you can find uh, links to wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it is, you'll find uh, links to the podcast there as well. Awesome. Well, obviously, all that information goes in the show notes. But for the folks who are only listening, I love it then that you spell it out. Well, thank you so much. That was such an expedition in, for me, unfamiliar territory. So it was really fascinating. And uh, I admire the tenacious, the tenaciousness you bring into this and the passion you bring into a topic that really needs all the attention it can get. So thank you. Well, it's been great having you on the show. And you ha I love your business and what you're doing and your story. <laughs> So thanks so much for having me on, okay? It's uh, been really great to be here. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and leave a review to help others find it. If you are a coach, speaker, or author, 
a passionate big picture thinker with a vision and you want to build an online business to reach and impact more people, go to passionbusinesspodcast.com and download a free copy of my book, Taming the Tech Monster. And join my free community, Don't Just Learn, Create, Business Building for Mavericks to connect with others on the same path. That's passionbusinesspodcast.com. I'll speak to you soon.